the Oakdale Christian Centre podcast. Recently, John McKay and Joseph Hubbard from Creation Research visited us. In this episode, they look at creation, design or evolution. What does the evidence say? For more information about John and Joseph's work, visit www.creationresearch.net. We thank John and Joseph for allowing us to record the sessions. John has been coming for 10 years, a decade. It's a long time, isn't it? Don't seem very long. Um, so this is about a seventh time, I think. He comes every 80 months, two years. He's got the, uh, got the flu. We caught the flu on the, on the plane. So John and Joseph, over to you. Bless you. Well, it's nearly two years since we've been over here. Um, it's good to be back. Uh, good to see Dave and some of you who I do know. And yes, if you can hear a little stuffed nose and head and things like that, there was a guy on the plane beside me who sneezed and coughed and spluttered all the way from Australia. And I thought, oh no, I'm, I'm doomed. Uh, well, within three or four days, I started to get that. And by Tuesday last week, I was beginning to feel miserable. I've sort of been to the bottom of the flu pile and starting to head up, but please, no hugs or kisses uh, if you want to stay Australian flu-free at the present time. You will see we have Creation Research UK as a website this year. Joseph will tell you more about it, and uh, we have lots of resources downstairs. You will see Joseph and I last year. You will see we were accompanied by a bit of a deadhead in the middle there, and uh, he's from the EU, by the way. Uh, So that's very interesting in your current situation, and we'll learn more about the museum this evening. Um, All right, Uh, when you have a look at your Bibles over the years that I've been here, we've been trying to teach you what the old psalmist says. Oh, when I first became a Christian, I read that in King James. Remember all the wither-befores and what-begot-nots and all of that? Thy word is true from the beginning. God's word is absolutely infallible right from the start. When you have a look at the psalmist, he said it, and I actually believe it. So does Joseph, so does Dave. And we spend our time going around the planet, really, sharing with God's people and those who are not God's people that they can trust God's word is true. I met this guy uh, a few years ago. Um, That was an advertisement for our supporters telling them that last year, in July through to September, we took young Joseph to Australia. I say young because even though this guy doesn't think I've got a lot older, that tells me his eyes are failing. Um, Well, perhaps I just don't look too much older. I feel it today. But we took Joseph um, to visit our museum at Jurassic Ark. We did all sorts of interesting things, got him involved in experiments, because one of Joseph's favourite verses test everything. And that's one thing we do. As I love to tell people, the God who created all things uh, is the God who is the truth. And he's never afraid of you checking anything he says. Come now, let's reason together. I look at the crowd that young Joseph, Jude, young, should I call you young anymore? Okay, young compared to some of us. Even the younger ones thought this new experimental machine was wonderful. Oh, you can read about these things, by the way. There's a handout on your, your ta- on your seat there. You can read a lot about creation research around the globe, not just in Australia, but this one has specifically been written up to show you what we're doing over here. 
Oh, if you think you've seen layers like that along the coastline, that's what our machine is made to duplicate, but not in 20 million years, in 20 minutes. And of course, travelling to Australia, Joseph discovered that we have some places that are cold and some places that are not so cold. Of course, we rarely have places that get as cold as it is over here. So we're way out in the middle by that big rock. You know the big rock in the middle? Um, and Joseph is actually discovering the joys of our outback. Of course, you don't really have an outback up here because most people are so close to the coast, everybody's up front, aren't they? Uh, but we have a real outback, and here we are out near... Oh, there's Joseph up on top of Ayers Rock, Uluru, as it's politically correctly called these days. And uh, here's one of the interesting verses. Beware of false science, it leads you astray. And one reason we went up there was so Joseph could say, been there, done that. So any of you on our supporters list who get our newsletters and saw our appeal to help us take Joseph to Australia for 10 weeks training, thank you. And uh, this year I'm over here for roughly the same length of time and Joseph and I are again going all around the place to deal with issues like this. You see, one thing that strikes me about tonight is there are few people under 17 here. Have you noticed that? Um, it's happening in America. It's happening in Australia. It's happening in New Zealand. You've heard of Fox TV? Last year, they had a survey that they reported. Now, they didn't do the survey, but it was on why young people are abandoning the Christian church. A new Pew Research Centre report polled a growing group of American youth who have left Christianity. Now, this actually applies all around the globe because I, I travel all around the globe, but they restricted their study to American church people and they discovered they haven't become atheists. They haven't become Buddhists. They haven't become agnostics even. Basically, they now believe nothing. Absolutely nothing. Why? Because of the big role evolution has played in their non-belief. Now, you, you do know the history of evolution, don't you? There's a good outline picture. And the young people are saying, if, if that's really true, there's nothing to believe. Or oh, the history, Victorian England sets up the Natural History Museum. It's dedicated to all the wonders of God's handiwork. There's even a Bible verse in the top of the foyer. Oh, they never point this out to you anymore. Because now it's a memorial to evolution. The Cardiff University Museum didn't start out as a tribute to Charles Darwin, but that's where it's ended up as. Okay, the young people now say if that's true, there's nothing to believe. Oh, think it through. Victorian England, there's a God. By the time Charles Darwin is finished, there's a God who used evolution. Then the next generation say, well, God's there somewhere, but evolution is just a natural process, and it happens regardless. Now you're at the next generation. If evolution is true, there's not only no God, there's no reason to believe anything. Have you noticed the increasing number of suicides amongst young people? If you believe nothing, I mean, why bother living? It's absolutely pointless. Hmm. What the Pew Report says, if you teach young people in England or America or Australia or Canada or New Zealand to believe that, they can't believe that. Now, some of you have been coming on all of those 10 years that I've been here. And you know very well, I've taught you all about Adam. Some years we deal with Noah. Sometimes we even deal with Babel. 
I don't usually touch much on Abraham, but in reality, the Pew report says if young people can't believe in the first Adam, they can't believe in the last Adam. Oh, the last Adam happens to be Jesus. Well, there's one of Joseph's favorite verses again. Beware of false science. It will lead you astray. But when we took him out to Australia last year, I'm thrilled to tell you that we both met Peter. Peter came up to us after a meeting. In fact, Joseph, wasn't it on the way to this meeting that we got caught in the snow? Yeah, Australia goes from super hot out in the desert and the snow came down in one location too. And Peter, well, Peter came up to us and, and he, he burst out crying. And I thought, man, this is not Australian. What's, what's going, is this guy needing counselling of some sort? And, and he finally calmed down enough to say, the last time you came through this town, which was 10 years ago, he said, you didn't know it, but I believed in evolution. And I came to listen to all the stupidity you had to say so I could destroy it. And he said, you destroyed every argument I believed. What choice did I have but to become a Christian? Hey, I like that guy's logic, don't you? And then I thought, well, it's interesting. This guy's obviously emotionally affected. He said, I just haven't met you from then till now, so I thought I need to come and tell you. I was really excited. Joseph was excited. So I said, hang on, is this true or is this just an interesting story? You know, I've heard some people give absolutely fantastic testimonies and they're made up. They just spect they like making spectacular stories. So I went and checked with the pastor. I said, what do you know about this guy? And he said, yes, he did become a Christian 10 years ago. How is he getting on? He's really growing. Ah, you can tell a tree by the fruit that it bears. Praise the Lord that Peter came to Christ. You see, false science might lead you astray, but true science leads you in the right direction. You do realise that's what your Bible is saying. Beware of false science, it will lead you astray. If you can't believe in the first Adam, then you won't believe in the last Adam. You've been led astray. It doesn't matter whether your name is Richard Dawkins. It doesn't matter if you're the producers of the BBC Songs of Praise who now have gay men kissing on their program and claiming the Bible is evolving. Your false science leads you astray. You know, we, uh, we have just been on a, a big camp with a lot of young people, but one of the guys who came along and visited shared with us that when he was working for the hostel system, he's now been told he must address the female chaplain as he, because she believes that I am is the true religion, therefore I can define whoever I am. Hmm. Well, chair for false science, it leads you astray. And he said, my only retort is to point it back to God's word that he made them male and female. True science leads you in the right direction. It doesn't convert you, only the Holy Spirit converts you. You do have that in, in, in balance, don't you? Our job is to tell people, if you take the burden on your shoulders of getting people saved, you'll die of anxiety. Your job is to tell them. As we've done every time we've come here, don't be surprised that I will not leave here, Joseph will not leave here, until we challenge you to actually make an absolute decision. My authority is God through the Word, through the Son, through the Spirit. As a result, we answered this question in a very particular way. When you go downstairs, uh, you will notice we have a lot of new resources. Because, I mean, after all, when you come for 10 years, what else can you bring? Uh, I mean, you've seen everything. 
oh, but they haven't seen the rocks and fossils that are down there. Uh, and you haven't seen the new kids' books. Because 18 months or so ago, a couple of parents independently said to us, what have you got? Our kids are being pummeled with evolution at kindergarten. I, I looked into it. It was true. The little kids are being taught we're just monkeys. The bigger kids are being taught we evolved. And by implication, there is no God. And as we pondered this, you know, I even talked to my grandchildren to find out, is this actually happening? And my granddaughter said, hey, Grandpa, why don't you write down all the stories you've told us? They're so exciting about God. As I thought, that's a really good idea. So that's what we did. So if you've got little four-year-old, five-year-old, six-year-old who want to know about the dinosaurs, you have a look at these books. They are fantastic. We've actually shipped them all around the planet. See the little kid on the right? I couldn't believe he'd sit there reading that with his sister. And he did. The, the, the storylines are, are really great. And the artwork? Oh, come on. When did you see a monkey do artwork that good? That's the whole point of these books. We do that because God created us in his image and he does beautiful artwork. Just look at a sunset. Monkeys don't do that at all. Um, you see, there's my granddaughter, Bree, who suggested this. There she is testing um, the, the, the book on a little kid who read the whole lot. Uh, who did the artwork there? My secretary. I discovered she had a talent that I didn't even know she could do. Just beautiful artwork. Have a look at them. Oh, and you want the really exciting news? This is the latest one. When Joseph was with us last year, we discussed all the kids' questions on dinosaurs, and the commonest one was, well, if God made them, where have they gone? Hmm, there was no books around on that, particularly not for kids. Can you see Joseph there, by the way? Uh, the guy with the red beard. The artist is a bit generous with the red. Uh, there's me on the left. Uh, yep, living dinosaur, I know, but that qualifies me immensely. And in the middle are two of my grandchildren. Hmm, we took them on a, a dig. In fact, when you have a look at this one, you'll discover you can go all the way through to Jurassic Park. And even though I probably can't do it on this laptop, uh, I'll bring mine tomorrow and actually show you. See that footprint in the top right? How good are you with smartphones and iPads and things like that? Because the guys who joined our ministry to help with all this project just this year have said, wow, this would be great if you brought it to life on a smartphone. And so wherever you see that, you can actually point your phone at it once you've downloaded the app and this will come to life. We'll show you tomorrow night. It's fantastic. You, or, or the guys who did this said, we don't want kids stuck on their phones because they don't read them. So we want to make sure they have to have the book in order to use the... You can't just use your phone. You can't download it on your phone without the book. It's a really good plan. And, of course, we had Al Gore visit Australia just a few weeks back. And, uh, you know, one of the churches said, can you actually help us? Because the government's paying him $100,000, about £80,000, £60,000 rather, a, 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 for three days' work. Wow, amazing. To teach teenagers how to save the planet when he's even unsaved himself. So we did that new DVD, a 2020 God's Eye View on Climate and Change. You do realise the creator invented the climate? And you do realise when the Creator became flesh and dwelt amongst us, he taught us a climate control prayer. 
Yeah, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Didn't he say, give us this day our daily bread? Have you ever thought through that? Bread is made from flour. Flour comes from wheat. The farmer grows the wheat, but only if it rains. Go to the desert and check. You see, that's a climate control prayer. It's interesting. You don't pray that, then you'll discover that the evidence actually fits what God says. Not the latest climate professor's stories of what's allegedly happening because we control the climate. Hmm. It's never the evidence that contradicts the word of God. It's always the opinions of men. So before I run out of time here, who is your authority? Is it the God who created things or is it man's word? Oh, a bit of personal stuff. Yes, not only do I have the flu at the moment, but I'm pleased to tell you my daughter in Melbourne, who's a nurse, has been praying for me. That's really good. I've only had it a week. I'm trying to give it away. No, I'm not trying to give it away. I'm trying to get rid of it. Um, But when I was here two years ago, I was particularly asking Dave and a few others to pray for my daughter because I'd had a grandson who died suddenly, mysteriously. And my daughter really struggled. Because as a nurse, she couldn't do a thing to save this little boy. The doctors couldn't do a thing. Nobody knew what had actually caused this. Hmm. I'm pleased to tell you that she's now had another little baby. And she's gone right up there again. It's just such a a joy to see the joy come back in her face. And I shared with Dave about the, the, the son whose little brother had died and really just tore him to pieces. Oh, he really loves his little sister. Really, oh man, they're better than dolls, Grandpa. Uh, Amazing. And Dad, Dad's thrilled. And you say, why would I even tell you that? You know, when you have a look at the little babies that are born, they always multiply after their own kind. Like God said they would. Ten times in Genesis chapter 1, he told us that plants would produce their own kind, animals would produce their own kind, birds would. And we do it too, don't we? I mean... When you have a look at babies, uh, oh, the sad side is babies never evolve, but sometimes they're born without arms or legs. Sometimes the real history of the planet that sin has affected thing shows up in even the little babies. Well, again, I'd like to remind you, it's never the evidence that contradicts the word of God. It's always the opinions of men. And I want you to pray for Joseph because he's now full-time. Two years ago, he wasn't. Two years ago, he was just... Uh, and a helper, weren't you? Uh, a good helper. And from now till, well, here we are on one of the high mountains in southern Australia, sitting on the edge of a coal mine, a gold mine that just goes down, 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 long way down. And uh, we, we had a marvellous time. But we're doing the same this year. So, Joseph, I'm going to hand back to you to come and tell them uh, what we're doing this year and then take over because you're actually taking the rest of the night, aren't you? And tomorrow night... I'll be taking the night and my theme will be all things were made by Christ and all things are made for him. But how does it show? I mean, on the third day, Jesus, the creator, made trees knowing full well he'd hang on one of them. Ah, all things by him and all things for him. We'll look in detail at how carefully and cleverly he's mapped out the whole creation in, in, in looking forward to the, the cross and the coming again and the new creation. Joseph, over to you.
Thank you very much, John. Well, it's really good to be back. Like John said, it's been um, a couple of years. I think it was 2017 we were here last. And uh, John is absolutely right. We are going all over uh, on this trip. It's one of the longer trips that John has uh, spent over here. We've got about 10 weeks traveling around the country. Um, if you uh, want to know more about where we're going, go to creationresearchuk.com. Uh, you'll see the full, or part of the full itinerary. There will be a full itinerary when I get a chance to put it up. I've been stuck without uh, any internet for the last uh, week while we've been in the middle of Dartmoor. But the full itinerary will be up there very shortly, and you'll be able to see where we're going, what we're going to do, where we're going to be, uh, you know, invite your friends, warn your enemies, and uh, let people know where we're going to be. Okay. Our main subject for this evening, creation, design, evolution, what evidence is there? Well, uh, some of you may remember, I think I probably mentioned it last time I was here, um, I worked as a uh, zookeeper for uh, nearly six years. I started work experience when I was 14. Within two years, I was offered a job. Uh, within two years of getting that job, I was uh, the head of the uh, reptile and invertebrate department with another one of my colleagues. And we sort of began to expand the zoo. We got it fully zoo licensed, and we ended up doing a lot of work with it. And uh, the, uh, the really interesting thing about it is it gives you a very good background in these animals. It gives you a very good way of working out how these creatures lived. You see, if you are, uh, as I am, a paleobiologist, that's what my uh, geology background is in, so I go and get to dig up fossils, they're just dead. Knowing how the living creatures worked um, can give you a really good idea or indication of how the dead ones worked. But the other thing it does is it gave me a real appreciation for how complex these creatures are. Um, because my job was to try and keep them alive. And it wasn't just to keep them alive, it was to try and give them uh, you know, the best environment as possible. And in order to do that, you need to know a lot about how they live. You need to know a lot about how they work. And so uh, I had to, I basically was funded by the zoo I was working at to do a whole qualification in zoology. So I've got a bit of a background in both. And it's very well helped when it's come to actually working out uh, and recognizing what we mean by design. So design in living things. What evidence is there? Well, we're going to start with dinosaurs, ever popular. Um, can you see our dinosaur skull there? Uh, over at Jurassic Ark down in Australia. And there's James next to it. He's one of our helpers at Jurassic Ark. And we're going to start off by asking this question. How long do you have to make a dinosaur? Or what would you need to make a dinosaur? And a good way to start answering that question is, um, what do you actually need to keep a dinosaur alive? Because whatever you need to keep a dinosaur alive, you will need to have in place in order to be able to keep that dinosaur going. Um, OK, what do you need to keep a dinosaur alive? Can anybody tell me what this is? <laughs> Do you know what it is? It, it is, it is, it is, uh, is faeces, it is fossilised faeces. It's basically dinosaur poo. Um, it's fossilised, it's been mineralised, it's been turned hard into stone, uh, but it is the remains of dinosaur poo. Now, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about dinosaur poo because it's quite important. You see, uh, dinosaurs, although the average size of a dinosaur was the size of a sheep, uh, dinosaurs could obviously get quite large, uh, particularly the older they lived. And so the larger the animal, the larger the poop it produces. Um, in fact, that is the world's largest dinosaur poop on record. 
it's nearly two meters in length. Yeah, they produced a lot of this stuff. But then if you're an 80-ton dinosaur, you're going to be eating a lot of plants and you're going to be producing a lot of waste, right? And it does lead to an interesting question because you've got to have a way of actually dealing with this waste because if you don't, it's going to be producing so much, you're not going to be able to survive. You need to have a way of actually getting rid of this waste from this dinosaur. Um, and it turns out that there is a way. Can you see this piece of uh, dinosaur coprolite is the proper word. It's just the posh word that we used for fossilized dung. Um, it's been cut in half. It's been polished so that we can see the details inside. Can you see that white spot up near the top? Hmm. You see, this white spot is not actually part of the, uh, of the waste matter. It's not part of the poo. It is actually a mineral that has infilled a space that was in that poo. In other words, it is a hole or the remains of a hole. Okay, what kind of uh, thing would be crawling around making holes in dung? We still have them today. Any ideas? Dung beetles. Yeah. You see, we even sometimes find the little fossilized dung beetles still inside the dinosaur poop. And we find plenty of them uh, that are full of these holes, or the remnants, or the representations of these holes, if you like. And they're the dung beetles. You see, we have dung beetles in the UK, um, and obviously the really famous ones are the, the big African ones that sort of do the great big role of, uh, role of dung, yeah? Um, but you see, John comes from Australia, as you probably worked out by his accent. They had a problem in Australia when the first European settlers moved out there. Because the first European settlers who went out there brought cows with them. And uh, you see, the native beetles could not cope with cow dung. So what used to happen is the cows would eat the grass, the cows would digest the grass, the cows would poop the grass, and uh, then the poop would sit there and dry and turn hard. And so for 40 years, they sent the young children out into the fields with great big rakes, and their main job would be to rake all of that cow poop into a great big pile. Yeah. And it wasn't until they worked out what the problem was, because you see, in the UK, cow poop disappears almost overnight. There's a whole host of creatures that will decompose it, dung beetles included. And it wasn't until they introduced different species of dung beetle into Australia that the problem was finally solved. Yeah. You see, dung beetles really do show the humour of the creator. Because, you see, what happens is the little dung beetle crawls out of his burrow late at night and it smells the air for that poop. And it crawls across to where that poop is and it begins to ball it up. Turns it into a big ball, rolls it back to its burrow and presents it to its girlfriend and says, here, marry me. It works as well. Look at the babies. Yeah. You see, the females will actually lay their eggs in that dung, and the uh, eggs will hatch out into the larvae, and that larvae will eat that dung. And then it will pupate and turn into a little beetle that then goes off and does more. Okay, think of a problem. Because you see where we're going with this? The, di uh, the dinosaurs, in order to stay alive, need a way of getting rid of their dung. And to get rid of their dung, you need a dung beetle. But let's ask some questions about the dung beetle. You see, when that little dung beetle comes out of his burrow and makes his way to the poop and balls it up, how does he find his way back home? 
It's a real question. It was a real question that was asked by scientists and was actually published in some of their scientific journals. This is the uh, big um, sort of, yeah, the, the front cover of uh, one of their articles that they were questioning this. Dung beetle problem. Which way is home? Because, you see, dung beetles are pretty small. Even the really large African ones are still fairly small. And there's no evidence from the fossil record that dung beetles were any bigger in the past. So they come out, they crawl their way to the dung, they ball it up, and they've got to find their way home. The grass is taller than them. They can't fly up and look. They've got to ball the big, you know, great big ball of poo in front of them, so they can't smell their way home. They can easily smell their way to the poop, but they can't then smell their way back home. How do they actually work it out? It's a real question, and it has finally been answered by these scientists. You see, it turns out these little dung beetles have a remarkable sense of direction. They essentially have a built-in GPS into their body. How do we know this? Well, you see, we've discovered that when it comes out, it'll take a picture of the night sky above it and store it. It will use the position of the sun and the moon. It will use the direction of polarized light. Oh, polarized light, you know when the sun goes down, um, it's still sort of light over in the distance for quite a while. That's polarized light. It's light that only travels in one direction. It remains over in where, you know, where the sun has set for quite a while after it's set, and so the dung beetle can use the amount of light that's coming and will store that in its memory. Any idea what we call this? It's the Milky Way. Um, it you know, spreads out across our skies. And it actually turns out that the dung beetle will not only use the spherical gradient of the night sky, but it will also use the orientation of the Milky Way. Now, you ask me, how on earth do I know this? Well, you see, um, it really comes down to uh, how cruel scientists can be sometimes. You see, what they did is down here, you've got a dung beetle burrow. Over there, they put a big, fresh pile of poo. And what they do is they build a wall all the way around it. And above the wall, they put a projector. And they project an image of the night sky onto that projector. And when that dung beetle comes out, it looks up, takes a picture, moves its way over to the poop. And then what the scientist does is it will tilt the projector. And so it's not quite the same. And that dung beetle will never find its way back home. And, of course, the beauty of using a projector is the fact that you can change just one or two little bits. You haven't got to change the whole lot. And so by chopping and changing little parts of the night sky, they work out that these are the important points that the dung beetle needs. And if you know anything about GPS systems and, you know, your phones and stuff that you use connect to the satellite, if you're connected to one satellite, you know roughly where you are on the planet. If you're connected to two satellites, you have a much better idea where you are on the planet. If you're connected to four, five, six satellites, you know where you are on the planet down to the centimetre. And you see, the dung beetle has got several different ways that he can position himself on planet Earth. And it's highly accurate. And when you test it, that dung beetle will never find his way home. Not until you twist it back the right way again and it can work its way out, right? Okay. What do you need to keep a dung beetle alive? Because you need the dung beetles in order to keep the dinosaurs alive. Well, it turns out you need a soil, and you need plants, and you need water, because you need something for the animals to eat to produce the poop that the dung beetle needs. Um, you also need a Mrs. Dung Beetle, otherwise you've got nobody to present your poop to, and you also need an inbuilt GPS system. Incredible sophistication. 
But you know what? In order to have that inbuilt GPS system, you also need a planet. You need light. You need sun. You need stars. And you need an entire universe. Just to keep a dinosaur alive. Hmm. You see, if everything is not in the right place at the right time, then you don't get a dung beetle. And if you don't get a dung beetle, you don't get a dinosaur. You see how it's all starting to fit together? Okay, what evidence of design can we actually see? And we're going to start with this question. What has the fastest acceleration of all time? Don't be shy, shout out some answers. Of all time, absolutely anything. What has the fastest acceleration of all time? Light. We always get light, every single time. Now, this is the reason why I don't accept light. Um, first off, let's just quickly, so before we go on, establish what acceleration is. So acceleration isn't how fast something goes. Acceleration is how fast it takes something to go from standstill to a certain speed. So we talk about acceleration in cars, you know, not to 60 miles an hour. In uh, our creation van's case, is about sort of 25 minutes. Um, <laughs> in a fast supercar, it's sort of two and a half seconds. Now, we don't accept light because we don't actually know what the acceleration of light is. We know how fast it can go, or we at least have a good guess as to how fast it can go, but we don't know how fast it goes from sand still to that speed. Um, we are also undecided, or at least scientists are undecided, as to whether light is actually a particle, a wave, or something in between. So uh, we sort of have to sort of give, give light a bypass for the minute. So this should really say, what has the fastest known acceleration of all time? Any ideas? What we normally get, we get, you know, suggestions like a speeding bullet. It's pretty quick. Um, supersonic jet. Yeah, that's pretty quick. The actual answer is here. No, it's not the horse, it's actually down here. Oh, you didn't think we were going to be talking so much about poop tonight, did you? Um, well, it's not actually the poop, it's what grows on it. A little fungus. Yes, this is a UK fungus. I uh, spent quite a few years working with the Norfolk Fungus Study Group. Um, I became the secondary recorder for Norfolk, so we basically had to go around having a look and sort of, you know, being able to identify different fungus and the like. And I spent many a happy hour crawling around uh, horse paddocks looking at their poop. Um, it's <laughs> remarkable what scientists end up doing sometimes. Uh, but this is a rather surprising little fungus. It's called a pilobolus fungus. You see, it's got the stalk. You see, it's got the little black dot at the top. That little black dot is the spore. It's a bit like a seed of that fungus. And you see, that little spore starts out and it begins to grow. Uh, and it begins to multiply its cells, which are called hyphae, which entwine into mycelium, which take over and digest that poop, which then produce the fruiting body. And they come in their thousands. Wow. Okay, there's your diagram. You see the stalk? You see the little pressurized capsule at the top, and you see the spore. Now, that little spore has a problem, because in order to grow, it needs to pass through the digestive system of a horse in order to create a chemical reaction which triggers the growth. But, of course, the problem is it's growing on horse poo, and no horse in its right mind is going to go anywhere near its own manure in order to eat the grass. So this little fungus has got to work out a way to get that spore from the top of the fungus over to a nice fresh blade of grass so that the horse can eat it. And also bearing in mind that that little fungus is between one and two millimetres tall. It's very, very small. And of course, the smaller you are, the difficult it is to move, or the more difficult it is to move, rather. Okay, what does this little uh, fungus do? 
Well, it turns out something quite remarkable. This is a little piece of video footage which has been slowed down nearly 300 times. There is music, there we go. Um, so what happens is the pressure builds up in that little capsule over and over and over until eventually that pressure builds up so much that this happens. The music quite fits it quite nice, doesn't it? It's quite sort of <laughs> poetic. There we go. All right, pressure builds up, pop, blasts. In fact, um, if you're <laughs> brave enough to go and find some and stick your ear next to them down near the poop, you will actually hear the little pops happening. It's incredible. Okay, fastest node acceleration. What am I talking about? Okay, that spore will go from 0 to 20 kilometers per hour in two microseconds. That's fast. It will be subjected to 20,000 times the g-force, that little spore. Now, to give you a bit of an idea, most humans can cope to around six or seven times the g-force. If you're a fighter pilot and you're very well trained and you're wearing a lovely sort of, you know, protective outfit, um, you can cope up to 10 to 11 times. Beyond that, certainly at that time, without any, uh, you know, special suit, you will pass out. Beyond that, your blood will begin to boil simply because of the pressure. Wow, 20,000 times the g-force, this little tiny spore has got to cope with. In order to put a human under that amount of g-force, you would have to launch that human at about 100 times the speed of sound, uh, which is uh, approximately <clears throat> 1,217,916 kilometers per hour. These are some big figures. 0 to 20 kilometers an hour in two microseconds. As far as we have discovered, that is the fastest known acceleration on, uh, in, in the universe, certainly on the planet. Wow. Okay, one more little piece to the puzzle, because um, you've got the fungus. You've got the spore. The fungus is able to blast that spore. The spore is able to withstand that amount of g-force. But then as that spore flies through the air, and by the way, this little fungus, one to two millimeters tall, can launch that spore nearly two meters in any direction. That's far for a tiny little fungus. Okay, the spore is flying through the air and it hits a blade of grass. The problem is that blade of grass has got a big droplet of water on it. So when the fungus hits that droplet of water, it falls down onto the ground, it never gets eaten by the horse, and the fungus goes extinct. What's it to do? Well, can you see the shiny surface on that spore there? You see, the spore is covered in tiny little crystals made out of calcium oxalate. Now, don't worry about the technical details. These calcium oxalate crystals, these little crystals, are what we call hydrophobic. It literally means water-hating. In other words, when it hits that droplet of water, rather than sink down into that droplet of water, it simply bounces off and hits the blade of grass underneath where that droplet of water is and sticks to it, meaning that that horse can come along, take a bite and swallow it down. And then, of course, the spore passes through the digestive system and gets deposited with a lovely pile of fertilizer and able to grow. You see, if the fungus wasn't able to launch that spore far enough, then that fungus would go extinct. If the spore wasn't able to sustain uh, that amount of g-force, then the fungus would go extinct. And if it didn't have the right calcium oxalate crystals, it would also go extinct. You see, the question that you need to be asking is how did all of this evolve from nothing, without intelligence, all at the same time? It really is impossible.
Okay, we're going to talk about one more example before we start to actually begin to define what we mean by design and we actually begin to quantify our terms. Snakes. Anybody not like snakes here? A few people. You see, I always love the reactions we get. We were at one church, uh, it was in Wales actually, and I was doing a similar talk and I put up snakes and most of the audience went, oh! Um, of course, we don't really have many things to worry about when it comes to snakes in this country. What was interesting is when I went to Australia, where they really do have lots of things to worry about when it comes to snakes, everybody was fine. They didn't care I was talking about snakes. So it's an interesting uh, difference of culture there. Um, I like snakes. They were my uh, big thing that I worked with when it came to uh, animals in the zoo. They were the big exotics that I really worked out. I think they can be really beautiful. Lovely snakes. Um, yeah, I got to work with quite a few. Okay, we have three species of snakes. Fun facts. We have three species of snake in the UK, native. Um, anybody know what any of those are? Throw out some names. Adder, very good. That's the first one. There he is there. Um, the adder is our only venomous snake. Um, of course, you might like to ask the question, in a very good world, when uh, there was no death, why were snakes venomous? It's a good question, and if you want to ask it, bring it back in the Q&A session. We won't touch on that tonight, but yes, I do believe in a very good world that they would have been vegetarian. There's our adder, the only venomous snake in the UK. Um, anybody know the other snake, any other snakes in the UK? Grass snake, I heard grass snake, there we go, there's a very good, uh, there's the grass snake. It's our largest snake in the UK. Um, does anybody know the third snake? Corn snake, not quite. Corn snakes are actually native to America. They're often found in the wild here because they're escaped pets, because <laughs> they're, they're the most common pets. Anybody know the third one? Not the slow worm. The slow worm is, and I know this sounds a bit silly, but the slow worm is a legless lizard. There is a difference between a snake and a legless lizard. Um, not many people get the third one. It's called the smooth snake. It's very rare, and it's only found far down in Devon, Somerset, and Cornwall, um, where it's sort of slightly warmer. And it, is, it, doesn't, it isn't found much outside of there. Um, but I think snakes are really cool. Now, in today's day and age, snakes eat meat, as you probably quite well know, whether it's you know, eggs or uh, mice or gerbils or something larger like rabbits or small deer. It depends on the size of the snake. Um, does anybody know how snakes will find their prey? They use one of their very good senses, their sense of smell. But does anybody know what snakes use to smell with? Because it's not their nose. Their tongue, very good, yes. Yep, they use their tongue to smell with. You see, they have noses, but they only use that for breathing. Um, and the snake's tongue works in a slightly different way from our sense of smell. You see, when we smell and we take a great big deep sniff, the smells that are in the air go up our nose to the back of our nose to special receptor cells that then send the information to our brain. Snakes do it slightly differently. Snakes have got a forked tongue. Um, anybody know why they have a forked tongue? Because most people never ask these sort of questions. And you see, one of the things that I learned very early on is that if you don't ask the right questions, you'll never get any answers. Ask the right questions and you will be able to find some good answers to them. You just need to be asking the right questions. Okay, why do snakes have forked tongue? One is for one side of the brain, one fork is for the other side of the brain. By doing that, they can build up a visual picture, and yes, I meant visual picture, of left 
to write using smells. There's all the technical diagram. They stick their tongue out. They wave it about. They catch the smells on their forked tongue. They bring it back inside their mouth, and they stick it up two little holes in the top of their mouth, which go straight through to their brain. They have a special part at the base of their brain called their Jacobson's organ, which is where they will wipe all of these smells off. The Jacobson's organ is connected to the same part of the brain that deals with sight. They literally build up a visual picture of all of the smells around them. And their sense of smell is absolutely incredible. You see, scientists have estimated that uh, a, uh, a snake can smell up to month-old smells. In other words, if a mouse or a rat was to have walked across this stage a month ago and I had a snake with me here today, it should still be able to pick up the remains of that scent. It is a phenomenal sense of smell, way beyond animals that you know, we normally perceive as having a good sense of smell, like a dog. Yes, dogs do have very good senses of smells, much better than ours, but they are tiny in comparison to how good a snake's sense of smell is. Okay, once that uh, snake has located where a good place to hunt would be, some snakes will go out and hunt, some snakes will sit and wait, but all snakes will catch their prey in the same way. They all strike. They grab hold of it with their teeth. And then there are two main ways that snakes will uh, either subdue or kill their prey. They will either, um, what we call constrict them, which is wrap their body around them and squeeze. It's constricting movement of the ribcage. Uh, or they will use their venom. They will bite them. And the venom will either paralyze or kill them. Again, if you want to know more about um, venom and stuff like that, come back in the Q&A session. It's a very, very good question. But we're just talking about the design in snakes. Okay. Snake then catches prey. Snake then has to eat prey. Um, this is Whisper. Whisper's the snake, by the way, not the, not the rat. We don't name uh, the rats that we feed our snakes. We're not quite like that. Um, but, you see, Whisper has a head that's about that big. We will feed Whisper a rat that's about that big. Scale it up a bit. Uh, I worked with a Burmese python called Salazar. Salazar has a head that was that big. He will eat small pigs that are that big. Hmm. How do these snakes fit a great big amount of food into a tiny little head. Um, something very clever that their jaws can do. Does anybody have any ideas? Dislocate, I heard dislocate, any other ideas? No? Well you see, it's amazing the amount of times I hear that snakes dislocate their jaws, um, but they don't. It's a myth. And as we, we honestly can't work out where the myth even came from. Um, but, you know, I was taught it in books when I was growing up. I was taught it in different, uh, you know, events that I was going around. I hear, heard it almost every single day when I would do the snake presentation and I'd bring out a snake and I'd say, so can you tell me, how do snakes swallow great big bits of food? And, you know, well, all the mums and dads would lean down to their kids and go, they dislocate their jaws. No. Then you'd go down to the little kids who weren't, you know, didn't sort of, you know, answer anything. And you say, do you know how snakes swallow a great big bit of prey? And they think, I think they open their mouths really, really wide. Well done, you're right. It's true. They don't dislocate their jaws because they do not have jaws for which to dislocate. <laughs> they never have and never will. Um, there's the technical diagram. You see, our jaws, in order to fit something of that size in our mouths, we would have to dislocate our jaws. And if anybody here has ever sustained a jaw injury, you know that's not a very nice thing to have to do. You see, we have got a solid bit of bone. Starts at a hinge up here, goes all the way round, completely solid here, 
all the way around and joins up at another hinge on the other side. We have a jaw that does that. Okay, snakes don't have that. Where we have two hinges, snakes have got stretchy ligaments made out of a substance called collagen. Imagine it a little bit like an elastic band. Okay, they also are not joined in the middle. Some snakes are completely loose. Some snakes have got a special flap of skin that folds up into their mouth. In other words, snake jaws are more like this. They literally stretch their mouths open really, really wide. And they've got a huge amount of muscles as well on either side. So they literally can work that prey into their mouth from left to right. They work independently of each other, which means that a large snake can swallow something like this. Wow. Or something like this. Of course, you do have to ask yourself a question. You see, if we as humans were going to start shoving a huge amount of food in our mouth like that, would you be able to breathe? No. Hmm. You see, a large prey, bit of prey like that can sometimes take a snake up to an hour and a half to swallow. Even a small bit of prey, you know, like one of my little corn snakes or one of my northern pine snakes, um, even, you know, with a little rat or a mouse, they can take 10 to 15 minutes to swallow their prey. They can't hold their breath for that long. How are they breathing? You see, you've never thought of that, have you? But then you don't get the answers if you don't ask the right questions. Okay, how are they breathing? Well, it turns out if anybody here is a, is a plumber or an electrician, you know that you almost always, when you are doing your plumbing or electricity, um, you have a backup system a special wire or a special piece of uh, pipe that is sort of like your overflow, your backup in case something goes wrong. An extra loop to be able to fit it in place to divert the current or the water uh, in case the main system doesn't work or can't work or if the main system gets blocked. Well, it turns out snakes have exactly the same thing. They have got a little tube. You can see it down in his mouth there. Um, there it is in one of my little corn snakes. And this little tube completely bypasses the throat. You see, a snake's throat is linked to its lungs, just like ours. Uh, a snake's nose is linked to its lungs by its throat, just like ours. So as soon as you start shoving throat down it, it can't breathe down its throat, it can't breathe down its nose. So this little tube completely bypasses that, goes up around its neck onto the top of its body and joins its lungs from the top. Why from the top? So it doesn't get crushed at the bottom when that snake is swallowing it. And you see, remember I said about those jaws? They could move independently. Well, imagine when you're swimming. And you know when you're swimming, you breathe when you're like that, and then you breathe when you're like that. You see, snakes do the same thing. When the jaw is like that, the snake will stick its little pipe out this way and will breathe. When the jaw goes like that, it'll stick its pipe out this side and it can continue to breathe the entire time it's eating. It doesn't matter how long it takes that snake to eat, it can continue breathing the entire time. And I haven't even begun to talk to you about the fact that if you stuffed yourself with that amount of food, your stomach would explode. It would. You see, the snakes need to have an incredibly designed stomach and internal body system that is able to cope with that amount of food. Um, and we haven't even started talking about the stomach juices that are able to cope with that amount of food. You see, Again, the question is, how did these incredibly complex organisms evolve perfectly at the correct time? Um, the point of this all? It's got nothing to do with time at all, but everything to do with the process. Get the process right, it can happen very quickly. In fact, get the process wrong, it doesn't just take a long time, it will never happen at all. Because get the process wrong, your living creature will completely be destroyed within 
one lifetime at the best within a microsecond at the worst. You need to have everything working together completely right. Otherwise, it will be completely destroyed. It's got nothing to do with time, but everything to do with the right process. Okay, let's begin to define our terms. What is a guitar? A guitar is a 100% musical object made out of 100% non-musical wood. You see, a very good definition of a creation is this. A creation is something that cannot happen by itself. You see, an evolution is something that can happen by itself. That's what atheists believe. They believe that hydrogen, all by itself, a colorless, odorless gas, given enough time, turns into people. They really do. They believe in the beginning there was nothing but hydrogen, and that hydrogen turned into every physical and living thing that we see today, all by itself. Given enough time, anything can happen. But you see, a creation is something that can't happen by itself. It needs a creator. Okay, how can we recognize a creation? Well, you see, anything in which the end properties uh, or the end product has properties that do not come from the stuff it's made from is a creation, which a guitar is. You see, when you pick up a guitar or any musical instrument, you know immediately that somebody who existed before the guitar, somebody who is not part of the guitar, and somebody who is far smarter than the guitar actually made that guitar. Somebody who existed before that guitar made the wood do what wood doesn't do naturally. Because wood doesn't get shaved and perfectly shaped and fixed together with strings to be able to play exactly the right sounds all by itself. You see, a creation is something that cannot happen by itself. The end product has properties that do not come from the stuff that it's made of. And a creation always proves that somebody who is not a part of it, who existed before it, and is smarter than it, actually made it. Okay, let's look at a few very basic examples. Um, a car. A car is a 100% moving object made out of 100% non-moving parts. You see bits of metal, iron ore in the ground, bits of you know, silica, glass, sand, bits of oil, plastic, do not by themselves make a moving object. You know when you see a car instantly that somebody who is not part of the car, somebody who's far cleverer than the car, has actually come together and put all these bits and pieces together and made it do something that they do not do by themselves, make a moving vehicle. It's the same with a jumbo jet. A jumbo jet is a 100% flying object made from 100% non-flying parts. Somebody has got everything together that do not fly by themselves and put it together using intelligence to make something that flies. Okay, what is a computer code? It's just ones and noughts. Because a computer code is a 100% meaningful result made from a 100% meaning-free source. Ones and noughts do not mean anything by themselves unless somebody who's very clever comes and actually makes them mean something and then goes on to become a billionaire. Um, yeah, it's amazing what you can actually do when you apply a little bit of intelligence to it. Okay, let's actually get to the crux of the issue. A creation is something that cannot happen by itself. The end product has properties that do not come from the stuff that it's made from. Therefore, if you see a creation, you pay the creator its due. That's why we attribute Microsoft to Bill Gates, because he actually made ones and noughts do something that ones and noughts do not do by themselves. That's why we attribute you know, the, the Ford cars to 
you know, Henry Ford, because he actually came together and made bits of metal and rubber do something which they do not do by themselves, make a very effective moving vehicle. Okay, what is DNA? DNA is a 100% coded substance made from 100% non-coding parts. It's just sugars, phosphates, and carbon. Carbon exists in, you know, trees, it's in your Weetabix. Uh, you might pour sugar on your Weetabix. They don't code for anything, not by themselves. They're completely useless. Unless somebody who has incredible intelligence actually comes together and tells them to mean something. But this DNA also has an inbuilt mechanism by which it can make copies of itself. Cars can't do that. Planes can't do that. Guitars can't do that. Even computer code can't do that. DNA can. Original DNA shows all the evidence of a pre-existent intelligent creator. Remember what a creation proves? Somebody who is not part of that creation, somebody who existed before that creation, and somebody who is far, far smarter than that creation has actually created it. Therefore, you pay the creator his due. Of course, a good question is, who is this creator? The answer is in John 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with, and the Word was God. All things were made by the Word. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and his name is Jesus. Jesus Christ is the creator. And you see where we've gone. It's by using simple logic, by using examples which everybody, you know, I have never, ever found a single person who has not been able to recognize a creation. They may struggle to define a creation, but they all recognize one. And yet when you look at DNA, which is far, far, far more brilliantly designed than anything we've ever been able to come up with, there are many people today who would happily attribute that to millions of years of chance and mutations, all by itself, which is impossible because it requires a creator to actually bring together different substances that do not make complex codes and make it into a complex code which is not only complex, can also replicate itself and has a mechanism by which will actually repair itself. Imagine if you could do that to your car. Save your fortune. Whoever invents that, if that is a possible thing to be invented, would become a billionaire. But yet inside every single one of you is enough information to fill many, many, many libraries. And yet there are people there today who say that it is a complete random chance. It's honestly ridiculous. Okay, we're coming towards a close and where we have some time for questions and answers. Um, and it's sort of a chance for you to sort of throw out your questions. It doesn't just have to be this topic. It can be about anything about the general sort of, you know, creation, evolution, millions of years, Noah's flood and the like. Anybody can ask questions about what we've discussed this evening, design, fossils, evolution, and the topic in general. The question was asked, given your information about dinosaurs, what did happen to them? What happened? Well, if you'd have brought our book, What Happened to the Dinosaurs, you wouldn't have to ask that question. <laughs> um, the, the answer is, uh, first of all, because I gave, I gave a, a talk, what, two days ago, um, to a load of uh, youth at this youth conference, and I spent the whole talk talking about how all the dinosaur fossils that we found have provably been drowned in the flood, okay, because of the position that they're in. And we had one very confused young gentleman come up to John afterwards saying, I thought that 
Noah took dinosaurs on the ark. If Noah took dinosaurs on the ark, but they all died in the flood, then you know, there's a bit of a discrepancy between what you're saying here. Um, so we, we sort of have to define our, what, what we're meaning. Uh, all the dinosaur fossils that we find, excellent evidence that they all died in the flood. But yes, the Bible explicitly states that two of every land-dwelling, air-breathing animal went onto the ark. Therefore, by that definition alone, dinosaurs went onto the ark. Um, size isn't a problem. Like I mentioned earlier, the average size of a dinosaur was the size of a sheep. They hatched out of an egg, which was not much bigger than that. So uh, you take the young ones on board, problem solved. Okay, they come off of the ark. Mm, as far as we can tell, they're not alive today. So what happens to them? The answer is there are many, many different reasons. Um, if you know anything about reptiles, you know that, well, they're cold-blooded, so you need to have, the larger the reptile is, the more heat you need to be able to sustain it. Okay, think of where the largest reptiles alive are today. Things like the Komodo dragon, the giant, you know, um, reticulated pythons and your saltwater crocs. They're all in a very thin strip around the middle of the earth in the tropical area. Beyond that, it's too cool. By the time you get to England, it's uh, far too cold for anything much bigger than that. Okay, so you need a much, much warmer environment to be able to sustain a much larger reptile. So after the flood, when you've got the first recorded climate change, because it's only until after the flood, at the end of the flood, in God's promise to Noah, that you get mentions of seasons. Summertime, wintertime, springtime, harvest, shall all go on for as long as the earth shall remain. Right? So the first time you get reference to climate change is after the flood. Because after the flood, you've suddenly got differences of temperature. You've got poles. You've got cold coming down, and you've instantly reduced your area where dinosaurs are able to survive, certainly um, you know, in, to be able to be prolific. Okay, the other problem is, if you also know a little bit about reptiles, you'll know that across all reptiles, there is some connection between the gender that hatches out of the egg and the heat uh, or the temperature at which that egg has been incubated at. In some extreme cases, like crocs or um, uh, turtles, literally the temperature determines gender. In other cases, like in some lizards, if it's kept uh, slightly warmer, only the female eggs will hatch out. If it's kept slightly cooler, only the male eggs will hatch out. If you're in a general middle temperature, you'll get a mixture of both. Okay, if you get a sudden cold overall and the global, um, then you will only get males hatch out. Now, if you only get males hatch out two generations down, you're gone because you've got no way to be able to reproduce and that's your species extinct. The other interesting uh, thing about um, uh, dinosaur extinction is what were dinosaurs called before they, before they were called dinosaurs? Because we knew about them. The name dinosaur was invented in 1841 by a man called Sir Richard Owen. He knew about dinosaurs way before then and he called them dragons. And he called them dragons long after he invented the name dinosaur. In fact, people called them dragons long after they were dinosaurs until it became politically incorrect to call them so. In fact, the Chinese today still call them dragons. The Chinese word for dragon is long. It's the word that they use for dinosaurs. And it's the word that they use for, you know, the mythical beasts that they celebrate at each new year. All right. There are legends and stories of dragons all around the globe. Every single one of them consistently is independent of each other. Every single one of them consistently is a brilliant depiction of a dinosaur. And in every single one consistently, humans are always killing them. 
So if you have dinosaurs come off after Noah's Ark, they spread around the world, you have an instant drop in the amount of dinosaurs that are able to survive, and then if humans start killing them the same way that we have creatures go extinct today, um, hunted to extinction. That's what happened to the dodo bird, that's what happened to uh, a lot of the woolly mammoths and the larger elephants. Um, you know, even in the last sort of uh, 50 to 200 years, you've had some of the much bigger, better elephants have gone extinct, and they're just not getting that big anymore because you've killed off the big ones, and so they can't pass on their genetics to be big. And so you end up with a much smaller type of elephant. Um, that's what game hunters do. They go for the big one. So you'll find there's a whole multiple list of reasons as to what happened to the dinosaurs. There's not just a one answer, um, but I would encourage you to go and buy the book and find out a full comprehensive uh, set of answers. I'll just add one thing to that, Joseph. We visited an abandoned medieval village the other day after we'd finished at the youth camp, and it was abandoned in the early 1400s, as far as anyone can tell, because it got too cold. Now, that's when dragon stories disappear in England, right? So they are rampant up till the 1300s, 1400s, and then they disappear, and all the evidence tells us it got really cold in the UK from the 1400s through to the 1600s. The temperature dropped, dropped, dropped. In fact, the, the Thames froze over till the early 1800s and it hasn't been frozen since. So don't, don't be surprised if there are real monsters that were reptilian and they were known from our so-called legends, right? Our dragon stories, and yet the dragon stories themselves stop around about the same time as the cold comes in. So that's just an interesting thought that came out of visiting just under Hound Tour, having a look at this abandoned medieval village, and you say, man, something terrible has happened here climate-wise. One more question, then we'll go and have a cup of tea and you can talk to us downstairs. Is it right that before the flood, the world was tropical? Oh, okay. Um, essentially, yes. Uh, you think about what uh, we know purely from the Bible, uh, Adam and Eve were created with no clothes on. And they did not have any need for clothes until after they realised that they were naked and they were ashamed because of sin, right? Which had nothing to do with the fact that the world suddenly got colder. Uh, it was to do everything with a, you know, moral implication over the fact that they'd sinned and they now knew that they were naked and they were ashamed of that, right? So uh, they were created without any clothes on and they didn't actually need any clothes because of the temperature was nice, which meant you wouldn't have had the extremes that you get in the deserts and you wouldn't have had the extremes that you get in the poles. You'd have had a climate that would have been certainly comfortable to be able to walk around naked in and be comfortable in it, right? Um, it wouldn't have been uh, tropical per se as we know today uh, because you find that you have quite a lot of consistency and then you get sudden harsh you know, bits of giant rainfall or monsoon seasons and stuff, right? There is still harshness even in the tropical sea, uh, you know, season that we have today. That is because you do have things like poles and deserts, right? And water reacts differently as it's traveling over a desert and it reacts differently if it's being pushed down by cold. And so where you do have a climate that's quite nice and tropical, you will get severe cases of, you know, monsoons or whatever, right? That wouldn't have existed before the, before the flood. Um, it mentions mists. And yes, we do see mist working today in a lot of rainforests and tropical areas. Uh, that gets overtaken by the monsoons, but that's again because of the rest of the climate and, and how that, that is like as well. Um, anything to add to that? No, I think that will do. Um, we'll be back tomorrow night and Joseph will be telling you some of the exciting stuff and showing you the exciting stuff of evidence we've got for our museums here in the UK and one that's coming up in Wales. And I'll be dealing with all things were made by Christ and for Christ, including the tree he hung on on the third day. So interesting studies coming up tomorrow.
Thank you, Father. You are a great God. Lord, when we just look, you, your word says you can see the divine nature, his power, his might, right before creation screams the greatness of our God. And more than that, you are the God who wants to know us, wants to be right involved in our lives. We pray tonight we will not just know about you. Father, your invitation to us tonight is to know you. Lord, we thank you. We have pushed you aside. We have pushed you away. Yet that sin has been dealt with. Lord, all we have to do is say, have mercy on me, a sinner. Speak to our, our lives and bless us. Make your face to shine upon us. Thank you for your gracious dealings with us, even today and tomorrow we pray. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. To find out more about our church, visit www.oakdalechristiancentre.org.